Okay. Uh, this week for our lesson, we have this week and next week for our open forum opportunities, and I'd like to talk about the Sabbath day. We talked last week just briefly about uh, the Ten Commandments, and as we look into the New Testament, we can see the Ten Commandments um, reflected pretty clearly. But the Sabbath day is the exception to that rule. And we recognize a lot of people will say, well, the Ten Commandments transcend simply the law of Moses. This is the law of God, the expectation of God. We need to keep the Ten Commandments. We use the Ten Commandments. And we say that, and that's good, but then we come to the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the seventh day I shall do no work. Is there anyone in here that observes that literal Sabbath day? Nobody, you don't do any work on Saturday, the seventh day of the week? No. So what is this? Well, do we, do we just transfer the Sabbath day to Sunday and do no work on Sunday? Is that what we ought to do because the church worships on Sunday? Is that okay? Are the Seventh-day Adventists right when they do their worship on Saturday? Uh, are, are we in the wrong and are they right? After all, the Ten Commandments say that the Sabbath day is meant to be holy. So I'd like to talk to you about this. And as we, as we learn about this, we're going to learn a little bit of something about the entire Ten Commandments how they apply to us, why they apply to us, and how they don't apply to us. And we'll talk about that. And I'm going to do this in two sections here. I'm sorry that's a little fuzzy, um, but it should be fairly readable. Um, we're going to talk about the, uh, a review of dispensationalism because it's very important that we understand um, this idea of dispensationalism. And then we're going to talk about the Sabbath day. And so let's begin by reviewing what dispensationalism... And can, I, can anybody give me a brief definition or a simple definition of what I mean when I say dispensationalism? Sarah? Okay. She said the mode uh, that God interacts or the way in which God interacts with a certain age of people. Let's, um, let's talk about that a little bit. We know that God is unchanging. But as we look in scriptures, what we see is that God chooses to operate differently in different ages or periods or what we would call dispensations of history. So though God is unchanging, though He is the same God, He has operated differently in different ages. We look at the way that he operated through Israel. We look at the way he's operating through the church. We look at the way he operated pre-Israel, pre-Mosaic law. And we see that he did things a little bit differently. Now, he didn't change. Salvation was still by grace through faith. The same things still pleased him. The same things still displeased him. But he worked differently. And we'll see that uh, uh, as we go along. So, dispensationalism <laughs> is an outworking of a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation, which seeks to understand God's Word in a manner consistent with what the Bible says, biblical assertion, what we see in the Bible, biblical observation, and the character of God. And so, when we look at what the Bible says, when we look at 
what we observe as how God works in the Bible, and when we understand the character of God, all of that has been compiled into something that we call dispensationalism. Now, it's just a word. The word is found in the Bible, dispensation, but not used in the way we're calling it here. Dispensation is a stewardship. And so when when this term came about, it's simply speaking of how God um, operated or ran a certain period of time. We're not loyal to dispensationalism. We're loyal to the Word of God. We have no loyalties to a system. We have loyalties to the Word of God. However, we do recognize this system in one way or another to properly reflect what God's Word shows. And so we appreciate the system. We allow the system to help us um, create a a body of teaching that we can understand and that we can use to better interpret the Word of God. But if tomorrow we recognized that this system was not accurate, we would not hold to the system, we would hold to the Word of God. I, I, does that make sense? Anytime we, we go with a model or a system, and I teach a model or a system, I want to make it very clear that though we are using model though we are using systems, though we appreciate the work of men gone by who have helped systematically define God's Word, we're not loyal to the system, we're loyal to God's Word. Dispensationalism is not explicitly taught in the Word of God. It's an observation based upon the teachings of the Word of God. And so we would say it's not an exact science. However, It is the only system of interpretation that is out there today that consistently explains God's plan throughout the ages without losing the distinctives of literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. The other big one out there is called covenant theology. Covenant theology is big in Calvinistic and Reformed circles. Most of the Calvinists, most of the Reformed churches will be teaching covenant theology. And they... Um, do things a little bit different in how they organize Scripture. And they see some things, and we see some things as well. But their system demands that we allegorize Scripture. That when the when we see the promises to Israel, their system says Israel's promises go away and they get applied to the church and there is no more promises for Israel. Whereas we read God's promises to Israel and we say those promises are still intact, God still has plans for the nation of Israel. Covenant theology would say, no way. That covenant passed away and there's a new covenant in place called salvation, which Israel can become a part of and we are now Israel. The church is now Israel. That's not what the Bible says. Covenant theology would also allegorize the millennium. They would say there is no millennium. It's, it's not literal. There's no mo- literal millennial kingdom. That's, that's allegory. That's speaking of Jesus ruling and reigning in our hearts because he did teach, after all, that the kingdom is within you, right? So there is no literal kingdom. The kingdom is in our hearts. And so they take those passages of prophecy and they allegorize them. And that's a large part of covenant theology. Now, the reason why this not an exact science thing is somewhat important is because depending on who you talk to, the number of dispensations that we see in Scripture changes. Generally speaking, I believe Clarence Larkin, who was a big proponent of of dispensationalism way back, um, 
better, about a hundred years ago or so, um, he, I believe, had six. Then Riley and Schaefer and some of these guys, Schofield came along and they redefined them and added a couple. And, and remember, this is observation. They're observing things and they're placing things into categories. I believe I have six on the screen today. I'll show you what they are. Some people say there's just two. Old Testament and New Testament. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations out there. But let me show you the, the, the basic gist of what dispensationalism is. We'll review it. We, we have reviewed it before. But we'll review it a little bit and talk about the trends that we see in Scripture. And then we'll jump into the Sabbath thing. So here we have a bit of a timeline. And what we see are um, one, two, three, four, five, six ages that I've, I've put here. I think these ages are pretty um, clear to see. And as dispensationalism teaches, it teaches that each age, the, the age changes with some major point in history where God comes and intervenes. Where God um, plays a major role where he physically intervenes in history and we see the dynamics of life and interaction with God change. And so we see innocence, conscience, patriarch time, law, grace, and kingdom. There might be some variation as I told you. Let's talk about these. Age of Innocence. This would have been from the time of creation and the time of fellowship going up to the time where Adam and Eve fell to sin. In that time, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. They did not know sin. They did not have to do any sacrifices. They did not, they were not clothed. They, they were ignorant of sin. There was no knowledge of sin. God interacted with man by physically walking and talking with him in the garden. Well, then there was this event, the fall of man to sin. And at that point, things changed. God didn't change. But the way mankind interacted with God changed dramatically, didn't it? And so we come to this time that we would call the time of conscience. Time of Seth, of Enoch, of Noah. Um, in, the, in the days of Seth and his, his lineage, it says, um, then began man to call upon the Lord. And so at some point, man began to call upon the Lord. God gave them expectations. But as we see with Seth and with even Cain and Abel, when Cain killed Abel, God physically, specifically intervened and cursed Cain. This is a time where it seems as though man was, was guided specifically by his conscience into his worship with God. Some did, some didn't. Enoch walked with God and was not for the Lord took him. Noah was the only man of his generation that found grace in the eyes of the Lord because every other man walked according to his own way and not the ways of God. Noah was, was a man that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, however, and his family. And so this would be a time where man was dictated by their conscience and their interaction with God, while God never changed, was in accordance with how God had revealed Himself to them, the spoken Word of God to them, and how they responded to that. Still, salvation by grace through faith. We see that all throughout the Bible. But their interaction with God was different. Then there came a major event the global flood came across the, over the entire earth 40 days and 40 nights of rain 6 months where the waters remained upon the earth and then they abated 
over the next six months. The global flood is a major event. And after that time, some people would, would divide this into two. They'd say that there was government and there was patriarch system. I believe we see here, as far as interaction between God and man, I think we see the patriarch system. God did institute government after the days of Noah that if a man kills another man by man, his blood will be shed. These sorts of things. But we see this patriarch time. Abraham, Lot, Job. We see the, the, the great priest king, Melchizedek. Days of Isaac and Ishmael, the days of Jacob. These are days where the, the patriarch of the family represented the family before God. Job did sacrifices for his children. He says, lest by any means my children would have offended God unknowingly. So he, he performed sacrifices for his children. Abraham went down into Egypt. The Pharaoh tried to take his wife. The Pharaoh was plagued. His wives go barren until the time that Abraham blesses him, prays for him. He restores Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham prays for Pharaoh and his, uh, Pharaoh's wives can then conceive again. And so we see this, the reality of the prophet and the patriarch, those heads of the families that represented them and their families before God. Lot was a just man and righteous, therefore his family was able to flee from Sodom and Gomorrah. We talked about Job. Isaac offering up sacrifices. Jacob uh, at Bethel offering up sacrifices. And so we see this patriarchal representation. Any questions so far? Thoughts? Until the days of Jacob's children... He has 12 children. They're in Egypt. Moses is raised up out of the tribe of Levi. Leads the nation out of Egypt into the wilderness on Mount Sinai. God gives this nation, this family, a covenant. And He says, I am going to work through you in this world. I am going to show myself to you. I am going to do signs and wonders among you. I'm going to raise up prophets from among you. I am going to give you this covenant, and if you will align yourselves with my covenant, then you will be blessed. And if you will not align yourselves with my covenant, you will be cursed. And your blessings and your cursings, based upon your obedience to me, will be a testimony to the rest of the world. We, we say that they are called to be a light on a hill. The city on a hill. That it's a... Um, come and see gospel. Come see what God has done in Israel and believe in the God of the Bible. Come see how God has blessed His people Israel and believe in God. And we see the epitome of this in the time of King Solomon where you had kings and queens and rulers who would come to Israel, who would see the grandeur and the glory of Israel and see the wisdom of Solomon and would say, truly your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. And they would bow before God and they would make God their God because they have seen the glory of the people that follows and obeys God. And so God worked through Israel through the law. 
Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, and even in the days of Christ. Jesus Christ came, and the Bible says that He came under the law. He came submitted to the law until the day He died on the cross and that veil of the temple rent in two, the law was still in effect. And so the law was in effect really until the book of Acts or until the last chapters of the Gospels. And that was the period of the law where God was working through the law, where God was representing Himself through the nation of Israel. And then another major world event happened. God intervened in history through the cross. Jesus Christ dies upon the cross. He becomes the Lamb slain, the Passover Lamb, the complete atonement for the sins of mankind. All the sin of mankind is placed upon Him, a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, and now there is no more need for sacrifices. And Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 tell us that God has set Israel aside and He has grafted in the church. He has brought the church in to be a part of what they are and who, of, of what He's doing. He has now chosen the church, as First Peter tells us, to be the royal priesthood, the chosen generation, the peculiar people, in order that we would show forth the praises. But now we're not just a come-and-see sort of a people. Because we, as a church, don't have cities and capitals unless you're the Catholic Church, which is not the church. They have their Vatican country, um, but that's not biblical. God has never told us that we have an earthly capital, an earthly kingdom, an earthly city. We look for a heavenly city. We look for a heavenly kingdom. And so we don't have a centralized ability for, to, to live out as a group of believers and tell people, come and see. Come and see. The church, I guess, has sort of become that in the individual pockets of churches, but that's not what we're supposed to be. We're a go-and-tell group. God tells us to go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. To make disciples. To go out and find them and to win them and to make them into disciples of Jesus Christ. And so whereas God worked in the law through Israel as a come and see, then through grace God is go and tell. The apostles, the church fathers, you and I, we're all a part of this dispensation of grace. The last days, also called in Scripture, where the church goes and tells, where the Gentiles are grafted into God's promises to Abraham, spiritual promises to Abraham. There will be another grand event where God physically intervenes, and that is the tribulation. At this time, there will be what's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. He came the first time at the cross. He's coming the second time right after the tribulation. And after those days, the Bible teaches us that God again, we will interact with God in a different way. See, Israel interacted with God through the law. In grace, we don't interact with God through the law. The Scriptures clearly teach us in Romans, in Galatians, that the law is dead. It's gone that we now operate through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, not through the tenets of the Mosaic Law. We don't have those blessings and those cursings. In the kingdom, things are going to change again. We'll see this as we continue, uh, as we go through the book of Ezekiel. Tonight is the Ezekiel book sermon. I encourage you to come.
Uh, it's going to be exciting starting out in the book of Ezekiel. Um, there's going to be redeemed Israel there in the millennium. There's going to be the church of Christ in the millennium, ruling and reigning with Him. And then there will be mortals, both believing and unbelieving, in this time of the millennium. There will be sacrifices made in this time. You say, why? Jesus Christ was the once for all sacrifice. We'll talk about that when we get there in Ezekiel. There will be a system. Jesus Christ will be sitting on the throne in the temple. There will be a prince who will lead the world in sacrifices. The nations of the world will be accepted, expected and will be required to come and make sacrifices unto God. And if they don't, the scriptures tell us God will meet them with a heavy hand of judgment, that there will be famines in their land, that people will die, that there will be plagues and pestilence until such time as they come and offer their sacrifices unto Jesus Christ. We know that there will be men of the, of the uh, family of Zadok, of the Le- Levitical high priestly line, that will be the high priests representing the people unto God. And so God, again, will be functioning differently. And this will not be like the Old Testament law. There will be some similarities, but it will be entirely different. It's a, it's a brand new dispensation. God will work entirely differently. And so that is... Let me pop this up here just for a moment. That those are that's what we mean by dispensationalism. Now God's not changing, but the way He's expecting us to come before Him to operate before Him, uh, the the foundation rests the same: salvation by grace through faith, an answer of a good conscience toward God. But there's a little bit of a different manner. He's operating differently in these times. Does that make sense? Are there any questions on dispensationalism? It's a big topic, and we could spend a lot more time on it. I just wanted to review it because it's going to become important as we talk about the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath and what God is doing and why it is that the church today doesn't observe the Sabbath day um, as it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments. Let's talk about it. We've got 15 minutes or so. The Sabbath understood. We see a cross in the middle here. Let's talk about the Sabbath. Sabbath principle. Sorry, I got bumped off a little bit. And on the seventh day, God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. This is the principle of what we see in Scripture. Now, we can go beyond, way back before the law, for a lot of the things that were done. Tithe happened before the law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. The Sabbath day happened before the law. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2, God observed that seventh day. Clean and unclean animals happened before the law. Noah was told by God to bring two of every animal, one male, one female, except for seven of a certain type of animal. What type of animal was Noah to bring seven of? Anyone? Evan? Not unclean. Clean. All the clean animals. What, 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 is, what did that mean? We didn't have any record before the days of Noah of what was clean and unclean. Well, God had told them. And we see the delineation of it in the Mosaic Law. What was clean and what was unclean. And so clean and unclean animals were around before the law. Tithe was around before the law. 
and the Sabbath was around before the law. All of these things were around before God gave these, the law to Moses and Israel. So we see a principle here of God sanctifying and blessing and resting on the seventh day. Sabbath principle. Genesis 8 verse 4. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. We see that word rest again with the seventh month. God had the ark rest on the seventh month. After the flood. Six months of floating around and then the floods began to abate for another six months. The ark rested on the seventh month. On the seventeenth day of the month. We're seeing a Sabbath principle. And if we draw this principle out throughout Scripture, we see this. There's a one in seven principle. And there's a clear connection between the seventh day and the concept of rest. Between that which is seven and that which is rest. Now, let me ask you, we're going to come to this again in a little bit. But when we see the number seven in Scripture, a flag should pop up in our minds. What does this number seven represent in Scripture? Perfection or completion. Perfection or completion. Something is finished. Seven. We see it reflected in our work week. Seven days. Why is it seven days? God made the work week. God made the week seven to be seven days. A seven day week. The week finishes in seven days. We see this all throughout scripture when, um, in Ruth, we just finished Ruth not too long ago. And the people in Bethlehem, or in, um, Bethlehem, yes. People in Bethlehem told Naomi that this daughter, Ruth, daughter-in-law, has been better unto her than seven sons. They use that word seven to say the, the complete number of sons, the, uh, innumerable number of sons. This one daughter-in-law has been better to you than seven sons. So we see this word seven used in that sort of a context. And we see a one in seven principle that finds itself throughout Scripture. Now let's talk about the law. And let's talk about what God is doing in the law. The Sabbath law, Exodus 20, 9-11, it was quoted this morning, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is and rested the seventh day wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So we see a appeal back to the principle of the Sabbath to establish the law of the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments for Israel. And the Ten Commandments were an enumeration of the character of God in the law to Israel. But we don't just see a Sabbath day, do we? There was a Sabbath month. Leviticus 23-24. Speaking to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of the blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. Today, Israel still sees the seventh month as the sabbatical month, the Sabbath month, Sabbath year. Leviticus 25, verse 4. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune, I'm sorry about the thy there, thy vineyard. A Sabbath year. Sabbath month, Sabbath day, Sabbath year. Are you seeing a principle? One in seven? A one in seven principle. But in the law, 
it was not just principle, it was law. One out of every seven days, one out of every seven months, well, it's 12 months, the seventh month, and then one out of every seven years. The land got a Sabbath. The cattle get Sabbath. The oxen get Sabbath. The sheep get Sabbath. The servants get Sabbath. The people of Israel get Sabbath. The land gets Sabbath. Everything gets rest. One in seven. Then something happened. The cross happened. And think about those principles that we talked about that go before the law. Tithing. Clean and unclean animals. Sabbath day. There's no command in the New Testament to give explicitly 10%. We've talked about that before. There's no commandment in the New Testament to avoid unclean animals. As a matter of fact, Peter sees a vision of a sheet. And on that sheet is all sorts of unclean animals. And the Lord says, rise up and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God said, don't you dare call that which I've called clean, unclean. He says, that's done. That's over. That was the law. It's gone. And we don't see a reiteration of the Sabbath in the New Testament. Now then, as a matter of fact, we'll see in just a few moments, in, in the book of Colossians, Paul says, don't you dare let any man judge you on the keeping of a day or not keeping of a day. If you, and he says in Romans, if a man keep a day special from another day, as long as he keeps it unto the Lord, that's wonderful. If a man regards every single day the same, as long as he regards every single day the same unto the Lord, he's fine. Paul specifically taught against the Sabbath day in a manner of speaking. He specifically taught against clean and unclean animals in a manner of speaking. And so we see that things changed. So what is the Sabbath day for us? What about the Ten Commandments? If the Ten Commandments truly transcend the law, which, by the way, every single one of the Ten Commandments is reiterated in the New Testament, except for the Sabbath. What is this Sabbath? Well, I, I actually believe that the, the Sabbath is reiterated in the New Testament, just not in the way we would expect. Let's look at it. Sabbath fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews that the law was a shadow of good things to come. That what the law was, that when God established the Mosaic law, it was intended to be a shadow, a foreshadowing of something bigger, of something better, of something that was coming later on. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So he says, don't let somebody tell you that you can't eat that because it's unclean. That was simply a shadow of something that was to come. Don't let somebody tell you that you have to observe the seventh day as the Sabbath day because that was nothing more than a shadow of that which was to come. Don't let any man judge you in these things, Paul says. Sabbath fulfillment. The key is in Hebrews 3 and 4. We read it uh, last week, but if you want to turn there, uh, we'll kind of review this together. 
seven minutes. Must hasten on. Uh, in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3, the scriptures describe Moses who was faithful in his house. But even though Moses was faithful to lead the nation of Israel, even though he was faithful to guide them into God, even though he was faithful to everything that God had asked him to do, there was still only belief, uh, only, or the only ones that entered into the land. The only ones that were able to enter into the promised land were those that were, who believed by faith the word of God. And so that whole first generation, with the exception of two men, failed to enter into God's rest. Who were those two men? I'm hearing some talk. Holly? Joshua and Caleb. With the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the entire generation failed to enter into God's rest. Though Moses was faithful in his house. He says in verse 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast unto the confidence and rejoicing of the hope from to the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their hearts and have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. They will not enter into my rest, the rest of the land of Canaan. In verses 12 through 19, the author describes Christ as being faithful, but again, the only ones who will enter into his rest are those who believe. Verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in you any, or lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. He's again appealing to uh, Psalm 95, which is what he's quoting there. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest? But them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So the whole reality of Israel, that first generation not entering into the rest of God, is intended to be a shadow, a foreshadowing, a picture of those who, though they would even claim to follow God, refuse to believe on God, and so God swears they will not enter into my rest. And he says the same is with Christ. You must believe by grace through faith if you are to enter into Christ's rest. Then we get into Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 1-5 through five tell us we should fear God lest we fall short of His rest through unbelief. Lest we have not placed our faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. He says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. He's not saying you can lose your salvation or give up your salvation or, or, or if you don't persevere to the end then you'll lose your salvation. What he's saying here is there are a great number of you who understand the, what Jesus Christ did. But an intellectual head knowledge is not going to allow you to enter into the rest of heaven. You must ensure that you have a heart of belief. 
I believe we see that all throughout the church today. We see a great number of people who are following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud as it wanders in the wilderness. They're partaking of the manna. Every once in a while they're murmuring for quail and God will give it to them. But they don't have that heart of faith. And so they're not going to enter into His rest because they've never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For unto us, verse 2, was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So they've heard the gospel, they know the gospel, but they haven't placed their faith in the gospel. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he saith, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the words works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief, again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall short of the, after the same example of unbelief. And then he, said, he goes on to say that the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so the appeal here is the reality that in David's day, David spoke of a coming rest. That when they had entered the land and subdued the land, David, through, through the, the prophecy of the Holy Spirit, did not see that as the final rest. That was not the day of rest God was talking about. And Jesus Christ spoke of a future day of rest, even to those that had believed on His name. And so salvation in this life, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is not the rest that it's talking about. It's about a future day of rest. It's about a coming day of rest. It's about the day where our salvation is made complete, the day that we're with Him in glory. And so there's coming a future rest. And notice that the, the writer here appeals to in chapter 4, verse 4, the creation account and God resting as an appeal to the reality that there's still a rest coming for God's people. Let's put it together. The law of the Sabbath has been fulfilled and annulled. There is no requirement for believers under the law. We can Now, take this for what it's worth. The entire Ten Commandments has been fulfilled. As the Ten Commandments... As a part of the Mosaic Law, it's done. It's done away with. However, the Mosaic Law reflects the character of God. And we see a reiteration of everything that the Law taught in the New Testament. And so we are still obligated to not steal, to not commit adultery, to not covet, to not kill, to not make any graven image and bow ourselves to it. We're still responsible to honor our father and our mother because these are reflections of the character of God and expectations reiterated in the New Testament. The principle of one in seven is built into us as humans. Now, Paul said that we don't have to respect any day, and, and that's true. 
But it's a good principle to recognize one in seven, to give yourself one day out of seven to rest. The French tried a 10-day work week once. Didn't work very well for them. One in seven principle, I believe we can say, is valid. The law has been fulfilled. The Hebrew Sabbath, the seventh month, the seventh year, the land of rest, these all foreshadowed something. And what they foreshadowed was a final rest. They foreshadowed a, a final rest. See, because the number seven, as Ed said earlier, is the number of perfection, the number of completion. On the day that God was complete with his work, God rested. And on the day that God's plan is complete, on the day that we are all standing with him in glory and he has gathered all Israel to himself and he has gathered all the church to himself and we are all ruling and reigning with him in righteousness and death is dead and death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire and the beast and the false prophet and Satan are in the lake of fire and all those who unbelieve are in the lake of, uh, uh, with unbelief are in the lake of fire on the day where everything is complete we too will enter into God's rest. We'll rest. And that is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. That is the Sabbath day for we who are under grace. And that's coming at the end of the kingdom. Perhaps right there we could put Sabbath. So as we understand where our place is, where is the place of the Sabbath? Well, the Old Testament law is done away. It's all reiterated in the New Testament. We all are expected to align ourselves with it, and we align ourselves with the Sabbath the day we're saved. The day we enter into His rest through belief, we have aligned ourselves with the Sabbath principle that God teaches. Now, as I said, I believe, I believe personally that one in seven principle is wise. There ought to be a day of rest. Your body needs that. God shows that even the land needs that. There should be a one in seven principle. But is it sin not to have a one in seven principle? Well, Paul said, if you regard every day alike, that's as long as you regard them unto the Lord. I'm not going to explicitly say it's sin. I don't see that in Scripture. But that's the principle as we see it in the Word of God. Any questions on that or thoughts before we wrap up here?